Would you pray with me? Indeed, Father, we do praise you for the reading of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to hear your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would protect us from taking reading and hearing for granted. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would protect us from a dull heart that's bored with your word. Or protect us, O oh Lord, from confusion that comes from the obscurity of things read. But Holy Spirit, give us insight and understanding, wisdom and knowledge and love and faith and hope and endurance. Give us peace and fellowship with you. Teach us from your word this morning and help us to see Christ, to behold him in his beauty, in his all-sufficient sacrifice, in his marvelous grace. Come near to us in our need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, beloved. Mm. Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Make sure you're all out there this morning. As you know, I love a good cookout. Also, as you know, we have Bibles for anyone who needs it. If you raise your hands, uh, and if you need a Bible, someone will bring you one. Just keep your hand up there. You pass Mike, Brother Mike there, LaVon. On the way back, get Mike there. There we go. Anybody else need a Bible? You'll be helped to follow along if you have one. Uh, we're going to work our way through these two chapters that Dietrich just read for us, um, and we'll be referring to it often, so uh, that may help. Leviticus chapters 4, 5, and the first few verses of chapter 6. As I was saying, I love a good cookout. You know this, right? In fact, a couple days ago, the weather was 80 degrees, and I was riding by Glenn's house looking to see if he broke the grill out, ready for the cookout. I hadn't stopped thinking about cookout since last Sunday. But here's the thing. Sometimes things be popping off at cookouts, don't it? I mean, the early crowd is always chill. Everybody's happy. The kids are playing. The food is good. You got your belly full. You're content. Everybody's chill. But then the cookout just keeps going on. And night approaches, and somebody gets loud. Somebody gets offended. The jokes stop being funny, and things get personal. Some beef everybody thought was over gets started up again. I mean, cookouts are sometimes places where we find out there's unresolved problems in the community, don't we? All the fun screeches to a stop, and all the drama takes over. See, in our cookouts, we sometimes don't know how to handle things, right? So, so more people join the conflict. Shouting gets louder, crowds get bigger, threats are made, and all that commotion. There's no confession, no forgiveness, no repentance, no reconciliation, just more drama. But that's not how God's cookout works. I mean, there is conflict at God's cookout. There are broken relationships at God's cookout. There, there's sin at God's cookout, but it all gets squashed if it's addressed God's way. This morning, we return to our sermon series in the book of Leviticus. We've entitled this series, Holy Unto the Lord, because the main concern of the book is that God's people be holy just as he is holy. God's people must be set apart to belong exclusively to him. And they must be distinct from all the unbelieving nations reflecting his character. Now, the first thing that God does in Leviticus, as we saw last week, is teach people about atonement, about the kind of sacrifice that would make them at one with him again. That's literally what atonement means. The first five chapters of Leviticus gives us five sacrifices. We considered the first three sacrifices last week, the burnt offering for sin, uh, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering. Now, each of those offerings are voluntary. But this morning, we come to two further offerings, each of which are mandatory. They are required. We come to the sin offering and the guilt offering. 
So Leviticus 1 through 3 focus a lot on the process of making the offerings, all the details about how you would sacrifice the animal and where you would sacrifice the animal. But Leviticus chapters 4 and 6, you may have seen as we were reading through, they focus more on the people who have to make the offerings and the types of sins that require sacrifice. So chapters 4 to 6 are less about how to make the offering and more about the who and the why. And we can divide this section into two parts. The first part focuses on the sin offering for various groups and their sins. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1, down to chapter 5, verse 13. The second part picks up at chapter 5, verse 14, and goes all the way down to chapter 6, verse 7. And that part focuses on the guilt offering for sins committed against God. Now, here's the main point of the sermon this morning, if you're taking notes. Here's the big idea. God maintains an inflexible yet gracious posture toward our sin. He is both inflexible regarding sin and at the same time gracious. And this is one of the marvelous things about our God. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to think about this with three questions. First question is this. What is sin? What is sin? So we'll do a little doctrinal work there. The second question is this. Do our intentions matter in our sin? Do our intentions matter? And thirdly, number three, do we owe anything beyond atonement? Do we owe anything beyond atonement? May God give us grace to see him in his greatness as he deals with our sin. So let's begin with that first question, what is sin? You'll see that um, chapter 4, verse 2, really sets sin as the, one of the themes in these couple of chapters. It says there, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, right? So right away, the main action here is sins, right? But what is sin? Well, actually, the Bible talks about sin in two respects. It is both a nature and an action. It is both a nature and an action. Every human being since Adam and Eve have inherited a sin nature. That means we have a, it deep in our souls, at the core of our being, we have a bent. We have a twist. We are crooked, right? And we are bent specifically away from God and away from righteousness, and we are bent toward unrighteousness. We are bent toward rebellion. The Bible calls it our sin nature. It sometimes refers to it as our flesh. It's this sort of indwelling nature that's corrupt. We weren't made that way, but our first parents ruined us in that way by sinning, by disobeying God. But the Bible also describes sin as an action. So we think about the sins that we commit. Now, here's the thing. Those two things are related. Our nature and the actions are related in this way. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The nature gives rise to the action. Here's how Jesus explains it in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, when he says, for from within, you'll know these words, right? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Woo. All these things, Jesus says, come from within and they defile a person. So our problems are not merely our actions. Our problem is our heart. It's our nature. It's this corruption in our soul. So sin is both a nature and an action. And the Bible uses different sort of concepts to give us a sense of the effect of sin and the, and the, and the sort of nature of sin. It uses different images to help us understand it. I'm thinking of four that are related to Leviticus chapters 1 to 5 in particular. First of all, sometimes the Bible describes sin as missing the mark. That's literally what that word means 
in um, chapter 4, verse 2. It's missing the mark. God has a target called glory or holy or perfect. And anything that misses that target, like an archer aiming wildly, is sin. Secondly, sometimes the Bible describes sin in terms of relationships. That sin breaks relationships. It breaks covenant. It breaks faith. That's what you'll see a little bit later in chapter 5 around verse 14 and following. It talks about breaking faith with God. So sin has this effect of breaking fellowship. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they first sinned, what do they do? They, they hide in shame from God. They've never known shame with God. They've never been a break in their relationship with God. But the moment sin entered the world, it broke the relationship between husband and wife and between man and woman and God. Or third, the Bible talks about sin as a pollution. So you may have heard of the word at the end of Mark chapter 7, verse 23, when Jesus is talking about all of these things come out of the heart. He says, these things come out of the heart and defile a person. It pollutes, it corrupts, it soils, it dirties a person. So sin is a kind of pollution. It's a toxin. And number four, the Bible describes sin as a debt. We sang about it in the song, didn't we? Jesus, what? Paid it all. All to him I, what? Oh, sin puts us in debt to God. And in Leviticus, the, the burnt offering is the, is the main offering that is made for atonement to address, that, to address that debt. The peace offering is the offering that addresses the, the broken relationship with God, which restoring fellowship as we have this meal together with God and with our families. And today we'll see that the sin offering addresses the pollution, the corruption that sin causes, and the guilt offering addresses debt, both to man and to God. Now, one more thing we should say about sin, just as a, a sort of doctrine here. That the Bible teaches us that, that really, as human beings, we have one of two kind of postures or attitudes when we sin. Now, the Bible talks about intentional sin. And in Numbers chapter 15, around verse 28, uh, it uses the phrase sinning with a high hand. That, that means we are sinning in, in intentional conscience, disobedience, and rebellion against God. We're sinning with a high hand. Now, here's the important thing about that. In the Old Testament, the Bible knows nothing of a sacrifice of atonement that makes up for a sin with a high hand. It's just not there. If you willfully, intentionally go out and commit adultery, you go out and commit idolatry, any number of sins that are premeditated and self-conscious and rebellious against God, this is why the Bible often, over and over again, says that person should be cut off from the people. That's the first posture. Here's the, here's the second. And this is what's addressed in Levit Leviticus chapter 4 and 5. We may sin, number one, intentionally, or we may sin, notice in chapter 4, verse 2, sins unintentionally. So it's not conscious act of rebellion. It, it is the sins that we create because we are fallen, weak, corrupt human beings because we are limited. These are unintentional sins that arise out of weakness. Numbers chapter 15, verse 28 calls them mistakes. This is the word mistakes for them. But look how they describe through chapter 4. Run through the text with me. Chapter 4, verse 13. Describes this kind of unintentional sin as the thing that is hidden from the eyes of the assembly. The congregation doesn't see it, doesn't recognize it, right? Or Leviticus chapter 4, verse 23. Calls it the sin that, that has to be made known to the person, right? So they don't, they don't have a internal knowledge of it. Someone from outside of them have to confront them with this knowledge of their sin. Or chapter 4, verse 27, something that a person realizes. They had been going along and, and, and had been committing this sin and didn't recognize it as sin, but somewhere along the road as they travel the path, oh, there's an aha moment. You know what? That's wrong. Anybody ever had that experience? Oh, man, that was wrong. They realize it. Or chapter 5, verse 17. Notice there, unintentional sin is described in this way. Though, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt. Right? So when we're talking about unintentional sins, 
we're talking about disobedience to God, we don't even yet recognize or see. Last thing from the text, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Gives us examples of unintentional sins. You see it there at first in verse 1? Failing to speak up as a witness. So someone calls you to testify about something that you have some knowledge of or don't have some knowledge of, and, and yet you refuse to speak up. The Bible takes justice so seriously that there are many commands here about being truthful witnesses and the failure to be truthful witnesses being a serious sin, right? Or number two, touching unclean animals unintentionally. It makes you unclean ceremoniously for the religious practices of Israel. Or number three, there in verse three, touching human uncleanness. Right? Somebody's got a, a sore on their arm or something, and you shake their hands or dap them up, and you didn't know it, and now that, that sore is on you, some, some mucus or something, unclean, unintentionally. Well, number four, making a rash oath. Could be a good oath or bad oath, but making this promise to God before you're thinking about it, and then being caught up in sin. So you see there, we can, we can talk too little, when we should speak up, or talk too much when we should be quiet. Or we can bump into things that make us unclean. Israel could bump into things that make them unclean, all of which was regarded as sin, even though unintentional, before a holy God. Now, what do we do with this? Just a couple of applications as we move into our second point here. Number one, we have to recognize that sin is a much bigger problem than the world admits. It's a deeper problem, too. As we said, it's a problem in our hearts, not just a problem with our actions. The problem is in here, not just out there. A famed British columnist was once responding to an editorial in the papers there, and the editorial question is, what's wrong with the world? He wrote in with two words, or, you know, one word, really, me. I'm what's wrong with the world. My sin nature and my sin actions have corrupted God's beautiful creations. And unless, beloved, unless then we get new hearts, we will continue sinful actions. And unless we get new hearts, we'll be unable to know and enjoy a holy God. This is a big problem. Now here's the other thing. We must not limit our sense of guilt from sin to the things we know and are aware of. Sin may lie beneath the surface of our awareness. So we must recognize that it's, it's possible that you and I have sinned but we don't know it. It hadn't been brought to our attention. This points to the limits of our own conscience, doesn't it? Our conscience may be telling us that we are fine, but before a holy God, we may be completely lost. This is why, beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you may be a very fine person, but you don't want to stake your soul on that. You, you may be a great person relative to me or relative to somebody else here. We may be bigger sinners than you. But that don't make you innocent with God. And we don't want to limit the, the limit to knowledge of ourselves to ourselves. We need knowledge from outside of ourselves to help us see ourselves the way God sees us, to help us see ourselves in the light of God's word. In other words, to help us see ourselves accurately. If holiness is our desire. So we need people around us who will lovingly, lovingly, write this word down, lovingly point out our sin with the goal of our sanctification. We need that, beloved. Or we may be self-deceived. So that brings us to our second question. I trust you already know the, the answer to this question. And the question is this. Are we innocent? Are we innocent 
if we didn't intend to sin? Now, this is an important question in a culture that tends to think that intention is justification for everything. You know, whenever we are confronted about things that someone else may be calling wrong, that we haven't yet recognized as wrong, or being told that we have done wrong to someone, how often do we retreat to intention? Here's the anthem. But I didn't mean to. We sing that like birds. But, but I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying to. That wasn't my intention. The question is, does that defense work with the holy God? I want to tell you two things. Sin is not excused by our intention. Nor is sin excused by our position. We see both of these things in chapters 4 and 5. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. You notice how um, after talking about the unintentional sins there uh, that have been committed by someone who refuses to witness, etc. At the end of verse 1, you see what it says there? He shall bear his iniquity. Or look down in chapter 5, verse 17. Now we're talking about the guilt offerings and someone who sins doing any of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not do it, then realizes his guilt. Notice, he shall bear his iniquity. That phrase means that the person committing the sin would be held accountable for that sin, for that transgression, for that iniquity, unless atonement for their sin is made and accepted. God expects each and every one of his people to obey each and every one of his commandments and in that way, God's attitude towards sin is inflexible. He's not winking at sin. Right? God's commandments are, are so perfect, in fact, that failure to obey any one of the commands makes a person guilty of breaking all of the commands. Write this down or turn there with me, if you will. James chapter 2, verse 10. James chapter 2, verse 10 James there is in the middle of a discussion about the law, and he says this. For whoever keeps the whole law, and who can do that, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in a single point of the law, is in a sense guilty of the whole law, because the law and all of its commandments is one piece. We tend to think about the Ten Commandments, and we think about them as ten individual discrete laws, but they hang together as one whole. This is why love, for example, can be said to be the fulfillment of the whole law. Because if we love in the way that God loves, we, we will not break any of the commandments, you see. And, and so God's attitude is inflexible, and his law is a whole. We can't say, well, I'm mostly good. I just got these one or two things that are problems. Well, before a holy God, it's as if you've not done any of it. God expects such perfect obedience to him. Notice now that not even unintentional sins are excusable. Amen, baby. So as far as our intention goes, we, we may be innocent. We really did not mean to do it. But as far as our impact is concerned, we really are guilty. We really are sinners. The fact is we really did sin and we are accountable to God. That that sin, apart from our intention, has an objective reality. This is why it doesn't do any good to use cute phrases when we talk about our sin. We, we hide our sin problem and the, the depth of our sin problem beneath cute language. So instead of saying, I sin, I, say, I, I messed up. Instead of saying, I'm in a pattern of sin, we say, I struggle with. And when we do that, we can feel better about ourselves, but those words don't address the reality. 
we are guilty sinners before a perfectly holy God. Our intention does not excuse us, nor does our position in society. Notice what happens as you go through chapter 4. God is concerned with sin wherever it may be found in his kingdom, at whatever level it may be in his kingdom. That's why Leviticus chapter 4 addresses these different segments of Israel's society. There are no special favors based upon position. So verse 3, the anointed priest. This is the high priest uh, in Israel. This is the highest religious official in Israel. He is meant to be anointed, that is, sort of chosen and set aside as holy to God. In fact, in his sort of wardrobe or his attire, he has a, a, a kind of placard on his turban that says, holy unto the Lord. And, and he is to represent God's holiness to the people and the people's holiness as he makes offering to God. He's this intermediary that stands between God and God's people, and he is meant to be holy, and yet he is human. And he has sins of his own that he commits. Notice, the anointed priest's sin brings guilt on the people. Just like Adam represented all of humanity, and Adam's sin was to affect all of humanity. So the high priest in Israel represented all of Israel, and his priest in, so, his sin in some way uh, affected the whole congregation of Israel. He could bring guilt upon the people. And though he is a holy man, and though his sin is unintentional, his sin still counts as sin and still brings guilt on the people. He, he's not absolved because he's the high priest, the anointed priest. Uh, not just the anointed priest. Notice in verse 13, we move to the whole congregation of Israel. Now, the whole congregation of Israel was also meant to be a kingdom of priests. Right? So in the same way that the high priest's sins must be atoned for, when the congregation of Israel itself, in some way that it does not know sins, as priests of God, as his priestly people, they too must atone for their sin. And being the special people of God, being God's old covenant people, his chosen people, Israel, does not give them a sort of special position in which their sins don't count against them. No. They were to be holy too. And yet sometimes entire nations can sin collectively. You could be a member of society simply doing what everybody else in society was doing and unknowingly in sin. Such a sin ran the risk of becoming culturally accepted. Think about the evil of the Ninevites, which reaches God and brings judgment, or the idolatry of the Amorites. Y'all don't know no Ninevites or no Amorites, but you know Americans. Think about slavery of the Americas or abortion today. All kinds of cultural sins in which we participate, and not just those that we fight culture wars over, but, but think about how acceptable greed is in America. The cultural, national sin that's participated in, not the same way by every individual, but we all drink from that dirty water. We all participate in it. Unless our stance against it is prophetic, we share in the guilt of it. Verse 22. So you've got the high priest and you've got the congregation. Now he moves outside of the, the priests of the Lord to, to sort of talk about the quote-unquote regular people. These leaders are not excused either. These leaders are probably the heads of families. They're maybe the elders of Israel. These would have been people who have been looked up to. They had status in society. They would have been looked, for, looked to for wisdom and guidance. But they're sinners like everybody else. And sometimes their sin, verse 23, had to be made known to them. So leaders, beloved, among God's people, are just as capable of spiritual blindness as the whole congregation of the people. And leaders sometimes must be confronted before they can see their sins. Such confrontation to a humble leader is a grace to them because we're not above sin or blindness. 
and we're not excused because of our position. Whether our leadership is in the home as husbands or in the workplace as bosses or in the congregation as leaders, we too are people in need of atonement. Number four, the common people, the folks. Finally, they must give account too. This phrase, common people, refers most likely in verse 27 uh, to the poor Israelites. That's why you see those alternative uh, offerings there. If they can't afford a bull, if they can't afford a lamb, if they can't afford, you know, they get all the way down to um, a, a, a pint of flour. Right? Whatever their social standing economically, they too are guilty of sin and they too have no excuse before a holy God. Let me put it to you this way. Poverty is no excuse for sin. It's not. Poverty may help to explain certain sins, but it does not excuse said sin before a holy God. God does not bend his rules based upon human positions, whether rich or poor, male or female, leader or follower, individual or an entire nation. God expects holiness from every sector of his kingdom. And when that holiness is not there, as it surely won't be, then atonement is necessary. Now, I, I want you to, I want us all to see and feel the grace in all of this. I said he was inflexible regarding sin, yet gracious. I want us to see the grace in all of this. It, it could seem like God is being really hard on humanity because of our weakness and our failings. After all, these are unintentional sins. And if we're thinking that way, we are still identifying with the sinner in their sin rather than God in his holiness. But truthfully, by pointing out even our unintentional sins, God is keeping those things from defining our lives. And by providing a sacrifice for them, God is showing his commitment to providing for our holiness, for all of us, whatever our position in society. I mean, have you thought about how gracious it is that in ancient Israel, all of their sins could be atoned for with an offering as little as a handful of flour. It's a handful of flour. And in that offering, no frankincense and nothing, no oil mixed with it, just a handful of flour, which we, we waste on the counter and on the floor when we're baking. It really wasn't about the value of the offering about coming back to God. That there is a sacrificial system at all is, is in fact evidence of God's grace. It's not evidence of him, his being burdensome. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They're, they're life-giving. It's not evidence of him being some kind of tyrant who looking to steal the joy out of the sinner's life. No, it is evidence of a God who loves and endures with his people and calls them over and over again back to him. That they might be together. Chapter 4 focuses on the sin offering. Now, you could translate that phrase, sin offering, maybe you have a Bible that does this, a purification offering. Purification offering. So the main offering that dealt with sin, objectively, was the burnt offering. And in that offering, the entire animal would be brought, would be, uh, hands would be laid on the animal, uh, to be killed, the blood would be thrown against the altar of burnt offering, and the, the animal would be um, butchered, and the entire animal basically would be put on the altar and would burn and smoke with a sin to God, and it would be God's. This offering is a little bit different. Did you notice? Look, look back with me in chapter 4. We'll just use this first mention of it. Chapter 4 beginning in verse 3. This is the example of the high priest who sins, and he's got to bring, notice now, a bull for the offering. 
Now, that would have been the most expensive offering. And I think that has to do with the fact that he's a priest and, and because of his, his position in representing God and representing the people. Notice verse 4, he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. So thus far, it's all the same. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, he lays hands on the bull in order to signify that he's identifying with the bull and his sins are being laid on the bull and the death that the bull dies and the blood that the bull sheds is representative of the death he should have died and the blood that he should have shed. Right? So he lays hands on the bull. Then notice in verse 5, and the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting now he's inside the tent. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That's new. He goes all the way up to the veil that, that surrounds the Holy of Holies in which God's glory dwells. He can only go in there one time a year. That's on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. So he can't go in there, but he's got to purify things. He has brought his sin into the sanctuary of God. Now he has to purify the sanctuary. And so seven times, you know, representing completion, he sprinkles blood on the curtain that is separating God's glory from the priest and from the people to purify that relationship. Then notice what he does in verse 7. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. That's not the same as the horns of the, of the, of the burnt offering. He's still inside the tabernacle. This is a, a, an altar that's built outside the Holy of Holies on which incense would be burned perpetually. And it had sort of four horns, four poles that go up on each corner. Now he's anointing the poles on that altar of incense. Scholars debate what that means, but maybe, maybe, maybe what it symbolizes is in sprinkling blood on those poles, he is also symbolically purified, purifying the praises of the people. Those incense go up before God over and over. Then he comes out to the altar of the burnt offering, and he sprinkles blood on the side, and he pours out the rest of the blood at that altar. But notice what's now different here. He takes off the fat. He burns the fat on the altar. God likes the fatty parts at the cookout we talked about last week. It represents a, a kind of richness. But then, look at the second in verse 11. But the skin of the bull and all his flesh with his head, his legs, his entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Now, in the burnt offering, everything was burned up. In the fellowship offering, the fat was burned up, but the meat was split between the priests and the people. Here now, nobody eats. It all gets taken outside the camp, symbolic of removing the pollution from the people of Israel, outside the camp. Now, if you know your New Testament, that phrase probably sounds familiar to you. If you have been reading in Hebrews, that sounds pretty familiar to you. And I want to commend to you again that you read Hebrews and enjoy Hebrews because it is probably the best commentary on Leviticus and on the Old Testament law in general. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, 11 to 14. If you can, turn there with me and consider what's said here. Oh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 10 and 13. We could do chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, all of it. But Hebrews 13, the very last chapter of Hebrews, then you get to the book of James. Hebrews 13, 10 and 13. The writer says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, meaning the Old Testament high priest, have no right to eat. Verse 11. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So he seems to be thinking about the sin offering, doesn't he? Or the purification offering. Verse 12. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the city of Jerusalem, on Golgotha, on the hill called Calvary. Jesus suffers outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I mean, everything that's happening in Leviticus 4 is pointing forward to Jesus. All the purification we will ever need is not found in the Old Testament system of offering this over and over again. But the purification that we need, the removal of the pollution of sin that we need comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died once and for all for sinners so that everyone who comes to him will once and for all be cleansed. Now look with me in Hebrews 9. Notice what he said in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14, thinking about this same sacrifice, I think. He says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not, not that old tabernacle that Moses made, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, the true holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, the atonement in the Old Testament was temporary and symbolic. Christ's redemption is eternal. It is forever. Now keep reading with me, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify now, not the flesh, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In his sacrifice, Christ does not merely ceremonially cleanse the physical body. But in his sacrifice, for those who believe, he cleanses the soul. He cleanses the conscience. He washes away the pollution that comes from the remembrance of sins committed past. He washes away the doubt. He washes away the anxiety. He washes away the angst of being accepted with God. He makes it possible for us to simultaneously admit that our unintentional sins are not excusable. Our positions do not excuse us. And yet, at the same time, we are secure in our relationship with God because the blood never loses its power. Cleanses and cleanses and cleanses and cleanses. That one sacrifice keeps cleansing. This is why First John says, basically, if, if we sin, we come to him and we confess and, and we will be forgiven and we'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Christ has sacrificed himself in such a way and his sacrifice has been so powerful that, that it, it removes from the conscience, from the mind, a crippling guilt and a crippling doubt so that we can come into the presence of God assured of his forgiveness and his acceptance and his love and his justification. Sinner, you don't know Christ this morning, you need to meet him. You need to know him. You need to understand that there is no sacrifice with animals. There is no sacrifice of, of your own service and effort that could ever make you right before a holy God. Your, your, the sins you didn't even intend to commit would condemn you to an eternal hell. You can recognize that, but then you also need to recognize that this gracious God has provided a sacrifice for you. 
Jesus Christ died in your place. The Son of God took your sin upon him. He took your shame. He took your guilt. was crucified to pay for your sins and was raised three days later so that you and I would be clean before God and righteous before God and be restored to a relationship with God, never to have it broken by faith that we might be the kingdom of priests that God has always wanted, and we might serve him in his eternal kingdom, which never fails. That's what's on offer for you this morning. If you would confess your sins to God and put your faith in his son. Don't delay. Do that. Do that quickly. Do that now. Do that without stumbling. Do that without faltering. Come to the Lord Jesus and trust him. If you want to know more about what, what that means, talk to us after the service. We would love to explain more about this beautiful God who is inflexible with sin and yet gracious to sinners because of the sacrifice of his son. I took too long on that point. Let's get to the last one. Third question. How much do we owe for our sin. What do we owe beyond atonement? If sin is a debt, is there anything left outstanding for us to pay? This is, this is what we come to when we come to chapter 5, verse 14, through to chapter 6, verse 7, and we begin to talk about the, the guilt offering. I notice now the word for sin there uh, in that section is a phrase in English that's translated breach of faith. It's a different Hebrew word for sin. It could be translated violation or unfaithfulness. These are sins that arise because of a, a lack of integrity, a lack of honesty, a lack of truthfulness in our dealings with God and our dealings with each other. Now, this section gives us three examples, three, three types of sins that we should recognize. The first are sins in chapter 5, verse 14, sins regarding the holy things of the Lord. Now, the holy things of the Lord can include a variety of things that would have been dedicated to God's ownership and God's use exclusively. That could include the tabernacle and the furnishing. They were holy unto the Lord. So if you had a bowl that was used in worship of God, you could not take that same bowl and take it home and make a salad in it. It was wholly dedicated to the Lord. But this, this, this breach of faith regarding the holy things of God could also include the priests themselves, somehow abusing or mistreating the priests uh, or their possessions, or it could include um, gifts and offerings owed to God. Think about Malachi 3.8. Many of you will know that verse, right? When God asked Israel, uh, will man rob God? He says, yet you are robbing me. Well, how were they robbing God? How, how have we robbed you, they said, in your tithes and contributions. So to not give to the work of the Lord, something you have dedicated to the Lord, would be to rob God in that sense. It would be to, um, it would be to breach of faith with regard to the things, the holy things of the Lord. And verse 16 teaches that the worshiper then must make restitution for that before they make a sacrifice of atonement. They must give back what they have taken. And notice verse 16, they must add a fifth or 20% onto it. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But notice the second category. The second category includes sinning by breaking God's commandments. See that in verses 17 and 19. This involved doing anything that God's commandments forbid. It's still an unintentional sin. See that in verse 17, though he did not know it. But it's still a sin that brings guilt. Verse 18 calls the worshiper to offer a ram without blemish or one of its equivalents. So this section doesn't require restitution. This is uh, it's certain groups of people here, I really want to, to hear this and listen to this. This particular section doesn't require restitution because the individual isn't actually aware of a particular sin they have committed. This offering seems to be especially tailored um, to people who have really sensitive consciences, right? Maybe even people who struggle with assurance being sure that they are saved or, or sure about their relationship with God. 
this makes provision for that person. They are, they are troubled in conscience, even though they're not aware of any guilt. And what they do is they, they bring this offering, they make this offering to God, and they receive the promise of forgiveness in order to quiet the conscience, to calm the soul. Think of Job 1, where Job offers for his children because he thinks they might have sinned. Right? He wasn't aware of a particular sin, but he was interceding for them because they might have sinned. And, and this offering is, is for persons who feel like Job, but feel that way about themselves. God makes provision for people with a sensitive conscience. Third category, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Category of sins that have to do with mistreating our neighbors. Mistreating our neighbors, of course, violates the second greatest commandment. The commandment that Jesus quotes often from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This call to neighbor love is, is meant to sort of define Israel and Israelite life. But here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, uh, God gives us four examples of not living that way, right? He talks about deceiving our neighbors in verse 2 regarding a deposit or something they have entrusted to us. He talks about robbery. Number three, oppression of any sort, sort of holding your neighbor down, oppressing them in some way, is a violation of neighbor love. And number four, he talks about finding somebody else's stuff and lying about it. You know, you're at the cookout. And somebody come out the house loud. Anybody find my money clip? Somebody found a money clip 20 minutes ago. It was a money clip. Didn't have no ID in it. They put it in their pocket. Everybody's like, no, we ain't seen no money clip. Yeah, I know somebody found my money clip because I had it out here. You know? And then those other laws come in. Those laws about witnessing and telling the truth. You remember that word back over there that talks about there's an adjuration pronounced? That's a curse, right? So sometimes in Israelite society, in order to bind people to the truth, a curse would be pronounced on those who were witnesses um, so that they might tell the truth, right? Well, we, we got that at the cookout, too. I bet not find out who got my money clip. Or it's going to be, you know, right? And I love what God says here in, in verse in verse 3, is it? I didn't turn all the way to Hebrew. In, in verse 3, when he says, in any of all the things that people do and sin by. That's God's way of saying it. In the bondage verse, he said, you know how people live. You know how people act. In any of them sins that people do in mistreating their neighbor, right, even if it's unintentional, there's guilt there. And notice now, chapter 6, verse 1, describes mistreating our neighbors as a breach of faith against the Lord. To abuse your neighbor is to break faith with your God. Our treatment of God, listen, our treatment of God never truly rises above our treatment of our neighbors. So 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, what? Cannot love God whom he has not seen. So neighbor love becomes this mirror onto God love. God binds himself to our neighbors as people who are made in his image and likeness. And how we treat his image and likeness is in fact how we treat him. Right? Now, the new idea introduced with the guilt offering is this idea of restitution. Restitution requires that we make people whole again. If we've abused them in some way or taken from them, then we have a responsibility to return what we have damaged or taken. So the guilt offering is that offering that addresses sin as a debt owed to the neighbor and to God. That's why restitution gets addressed here. Now look with me in a couple of verses. Chapter 5, verse 16 again. He says, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. 
Jump down to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Five quick bullet points, just bullet points about restitution. Here's the first one. Chapter 6, verse 4. We must restore what we took. If you took it, it wasn't yours. You got to give it back. Second bullet point. We must restore it at full value. Right? You can't borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, break the lawnmower, and say, here's your lawnmower back. You got to give it back the way you got it. Right? At full value. Number three, we must add one-fifth of its value to it. You see it there? If you're an ancient Israelite, you've got to add 20% to it. So I'm not only going to bring you your lawnmower back, fully functioning, but I'm going to give you a gift certificate at Home Depot to go get some other stuff that you might want to use with your lawnmower. Right? Number four. See this in chapter 6, verse 5, near the end there. We must make restitution on the day we realize it. Right? You, you don't get to hold on to it for a little while. You don't get to set your own timetable for paying it back. The day you realize that you have sinned against your neighbor in any kind of breach of faith, on that day, by God's law, we are required to make it right. Number five, chapter six, verse six, we must see it, that breach of faith against our neighbor, as restitution to both man and to God. If how we treat our neighbor is a reflection of our relationship with God, then restitution also is a reflection not only of how we treat our neighbor, but how we honor God. Number six, we must make restitution before making an offering. Or you make the sacrifice. Now, there's no way for us, if we have wronged our neighbor, there's no way for us to make an offering to God to be right with God without first repairing what we did with our neighbor. Isn't this what Jesus teaches in the gospel when he says, if you're at the altar worshiping and there realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled, and then come make your gift. That principle hasn't changed. Now, this part of God's law and this calling for restitution with the guilt offering, uh, it accounts for several things. It accounts for the original value of the thing taken. It accounts for the injury and inconvenience we have caused others. That's the 20%. It accounts for the victim's perspective and timing. The party who is wrong is the one who sets the timeline. Give it to him immediately that day. And it accounts for repentance, genuine repentance. This is what repentance looks like. Again, we have a good New Testament example of this, don't we? You're probably thinking of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in that sycamore tree because Jesus he wanted to see. Jesus comes cruising along. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He says, come down. We're going to eat at your crib today. Zacchaeus throw a whole party, invites his friends and all that good stuff. And Zacchaeus, the Lord, is working on his heart. What does Zacchaeus do? He's a tax collector. He's robbed people. He's robbed his neighbors. He fulfills this here law. He says, whatever I've taken, I return it, and I'll give four times as much. Jesus says, salvation has come to your house today. This is what repentance looks like, right? So the principle of restitution applies to everything from, don't leave the room now, stay in here with me, from relationships to reparations. Whenever a theft or oppression occurs, this is what it looks like to make things right according to God's word. I spent the better part, I, I brought my amen, brother, thank you. I brought, I brought my amen with me. I spent the better part of the last couple of years trying to convince Bible-believing Christians that reparations or restitution 
is in the Bible and should be done. But what did, what, did, what, did, what did you get met with? You got met with Christians who were like, I didn't do it. And I said, okay, but okay, we just finished talking about national sins. Right? The whole country did it. Right? And, and you get met with, well, 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 how much it going to cost? How much labor and life did you steal? For how long and plus 20%. Right. The, the principles are here. Now, I'm not suggesting what a policy should look like. Right. That better minds got to figure that out than me. What I feel like I've been contending for and forget the rest of the church world. What I want ARC to uh, do is be deeply biblical in our reasoning. In our reasoning about things like repentance and restitution and atonement, because. In those conversations, it seems to me that the enemy has sucked out gospel logic in those conversations. Because if Jesus paid it all, if he settled our debt and he has reconciled us, and if Jesus in his own teaching has called us to go and make things right and to be reconciled with others, even with our enemies, it seems to me there's no legitimate excuse for God's people to be advocates for restitution. And is it costly? Well, yes. But so is the blood of the Son of God. It ain't nearly that costly. So that. I digress. Let me point out something else here, and we'll, we'll, we'll land the plane. Notice that atonement and restitution are two different but related things. This is where I made the comment about sort of sucking out gospel logic. Let me, let me just do two minutes on this. Notice that atonement does not replace or eliminate restitution. The guilt offering pays our spiritual debt to God for sin, but the restitution pays our practical debt to our neighbor for our sin against them. Some people claim that paying God eliminates paying the neighbor. That, beloved, is not true. And that, beloved, is why at least the church in America has been so complicit in the ongoing legacy of injustice in this country. Because we have sometimes, we, not me, them, they have sometimes said that because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, I'm free of all that. Uh, no. You're free of it with God. He atoned for it with God. You're not free of it with neighbor. That has to be worked out in actual reconciliation. You, we know this. All of us who... Well, all of us who are human, we know this. If you're in any kind of relationship, a job relationship, a marriage relationship, a parenting relationship, what a, a friendship relationship, you know that if you have done something to break that relationship, you, you, and you're talking about it with that person, you can't then drop a, well, Jesus died for it, so we good. Brother, do not try this at home. You know you do have to preach the gospel to yourself lest we be crushed by guilt and shame. But then we also have to bring forth the fruit of repentance and reconciliation to actually make the relationship right. This is what the guilt offering does. This is what Jesus enables us to do. If we are free from the shame of guilt, we ought to be those people who move toward restitution and reconciliation. I thank you for your time. We should stop here. May the Lord prove to us again and again that while he is inflexible with sin, he never winks at it, he is also most gracious, most merciful, and he always calls us to come to him again. Christ has indeed gone into the Holy of Holies for us, offered his own blood as the sacrifice, and redeemed us from sin and death and judgment and made us God's holy people. May it give us grace to lean into that sacrifice and to live that way. Let's pray together.
Father, in your word are things that are too wonderful for us. Things that defy human speech. Things that to us might even appear illogical. But we praise you that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways and your thoughts are higher than ours. And that's never more true in the gospel where you take the sins of the guilty and you place it on the innocent. Where you take the righteousness of the innocent and you dress the guilty in them. Because of this sweet exchange of Jesus on the cross and his righteousness accredited us through faith, we now are your holy people. And we pray that you would help us to live day by day in that perfect sacrifice that he has made and to day by day live out the reconciliation, the restitution, to live out the justice and the neighbor love that you have called us to. Help us, O oh Lord, and if you help us, we will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.